in the church calendar. This is the first week of Christmas. And uh, so, you know, Christmas in the church calendar has 12 days. And so this Sunday we celebrate Christmas, and then next Sunday we will uh, celebrate Epiphany, uh, as Saturday is that day of Epiphany, in which the, the gospel first appeared to the Gentiles in the visit of the Magi. So we'll be thinking about that. Um, even though, as, as Mark said, it throws our, 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 uh, our time schedule off to think this is our Christmas Sunday, but it's, a, it's the season of Christmas. And Lent, or excuse me, Advent is that four weeks prior to Christmas, and then it's 12 days of feasting within the, within the historic uh, uh, church calendar. And so today, we do take up the incarnation. We take up uh, Christmas uh, 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 Sunday, and we're looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 primarily, but of course this is within the greater context of the whole book of Galatians. But again, talking about memorizing Scripture and having some in your heart, I think as Christians we all ought to have Galatians 4.4 uh, memorized. If you don't have it memorized, I encourage you to memorize it. Uh, it's short, you can do it. Uh, but also, not that I'm underselling you, you could do it if it's long too, but I'm just saying it's short, uh, you can do it. Uh, but Galatians 4.4, 4, in some sense, is the whole Bible in a verse. Galatians 4.4 4 really is the entire story of the Bible crunched down and put beautifully and succinctly into one verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. That little short verse takes the whole story of all the books of the Bible and compresses it and gives it to you in a simple bite-sized morsel. And I want us to think about that today as we now reflect on the other side of Christmas, having celebrated it on uh, last Monday, nonetheless looking back upon what has happened in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll use this verse to kind of branch off of. So let's just think through the phrases of this verse, and I can't even say mind them because we'll only be, begin to scratch the surface. If in fact the whole Bible is contained in this verse, then this is a verse that requires much digging, much contemplation. But nonetheless, we can uh, we can remind ourselves of certain uh, deep and valuable things here. Verse four: When the fullness of time had come. Now, Paul is in the middle of a book here. He's writing to the Galatians, and the Galatians, he loves these people very much. These are the, these are the first people that he, he planted churches in their, in their cities. This is, this is in southern Turkey. And Paul, in his first missionary journey, kind of travels up through Cyprus and then into southern Turkey, into the region of Galatia, and plants these churches and these are at the very beginning of his ministry. Every missionary trip that he went on, he went back through these cities. He loved these people very much. They had watched him be stoned to death. Um, they thought he was dead. They uh, People dragged him out of the city uh, thinking he was dead. They've watched him suffer for the gospel. And Paul has come back again and again and again to remind them of, of the, the beauty and the riches of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. However... As Paul would leave these cities, men would come in behind him and uh, try to call these new Gentile converts into Judaism. 
They would say, well, you know what Paul is saying is all good and well as far as it goes, but you know if you really want to be a child of God, if you want to enjoy the riches of the kingdom, then you have to become a Jew. You have to take on the Jewish life. You have to take on circumcision. You have to take on the food laws. You have to take on Sabbath keeping. You have to take on all the Jewish law. And these Gentile converts, I mean, Paul's a Jew. They're Jews. They're telling him, they're telling them these things and they begin to think, well, okay, I, I guess we need to do that. And, and so Paul would go away and these Galatian churches would start to slide into giving an ear to these Judaizers, as they were called, calling these Gentile converts to take on Judaism. And if you will, kind of go back into the old covenant, go back into the Jewish way of living. And Paul's very disturbed by this. If you read Galatians through, uh, it has a tone of anger at times. He is frustrated with them. He calls them foolish Galatians, you know. He talks about how even Peter, you know, uh, uh, for a moment, uh, uh, one of Peter's lapses, you know, uh, kind of contributed to this and how he had to rebuke Peter to his face. And I mean, Paul's got some passion in Galatians. He's very bothered by these who are coming in and who are denying the gospel of liberation in Christ. So that's the context that Paul's dealing with here. So when we come to chapter four, we're in the middle of an art, literally in the middle of an argument that is already being made. And what he's just said in chapter three is that if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have faith in him, if you are baptized into Christ, then you are a child of Abraham. You, you do not need to take on all the customs of the Jews in the old covenant, but rather if you have the faith of Abraham, then you are a child of Abraham. If you are a child of Abraham, then you are a co-heir with Abraham and all these kinds of things. So that is what he has just said in chapter three. And now in chapter four, he says, now I say that an heir, because he's, he's saying, hey, you are heirs, right? Uh, if you go back to verse 29 of chapter 3. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That is, all the promises that were given to Abraham are yours if you are in Christ. You don't have to go back and become a Jew, with air quotes, and take on all the Jewish customs. If you are in Christ, all of that is already yours. You're an heir. Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by his father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage un under the elements of the world. So Paul is saying, as heirs, even the Jews, when we were children, so now he's thinking, think about Old Testament Israel as the people of God, but as children. And as children in the Old Testament, they had to be given guardians. They were not mature to receive the full inheritance, just as you can imagine a very wealthy person leaving a trust for his children and, but saying, but you don't give, you don't give millions of dollars to a six year old, right? They just go buy nerds and, and candy bars and, and, and Legos, you know? Uh, so you, you wait and you, you let them mature and you put guardians around them to train them up and tutors to help them mature to be the kind of man that you're, or woman that you want them to be so that when they reach maturity, the trust can open and they can receive the full inheritance. And Paul looks at the Old Testament that way and says, as the people of God, they were children and therefore guardians. The law in the Old Testament, all the laws and regulations and the foods you can eat and the things you can touch and how you handle this and how you handle that, all of those things were like guardians to help mature the people of God that they may become a true son, a mature son that could then receive 
the inheritance. So that's how Paul's looking back at the Old Testament. That then brings us to verse 4. But, so in the Old Testament, little children with the need of guardians and stewards and tutors and regulations, but when the fullness of time had come, there was going to come a time when those things go away. Once you reach maturity, you don't need the guardians and the tutors anymore. They've served their purpose. They're not bad. They're just outdated. You don't need them anymore. Just like I, I with my students at the school, I often use the image of training wheels on a bike. That The, the Old Testament law was like training wheels. The, the people of God imagine them as a person, and, and they're trying to learn to ride the bike. But you need training wheels. You can't just take off riding. And so you have the training wheels, and they catch you when you lose your balance, you know, and they keep you upright. But there comes a time when the training wheels come off and they hang in the, in the garage. And now you can ride the bike all over. You're free. You're free. You don't have to go back and put on the training wheels because now you know how to ride. And that's what Paul is saying. There came a time, and he calls this the fullness of time. When time reached its climax, when time reached the point of perfect fullness, the end, if you will, the climax of the story. And when Paul looks at the incarnation, when he looks at Christmas, what he sees is the end of the story, not the beginning of the story, the end of the story. It is literally the fullness of time. Time has reached its completion. It has reached the fullness. Everything the Old Testament was moving toward, in fact, even more than the Old Testament, all time was moving toward, has reached its climax in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Time is full now. Now, for the, for the Galatians, that means, hey, don't be foolish, you foolish Galatians. Don't go back and try to put the training wheels back on. Who wants to ride a bike with training wheels? Don't go back and put yourself under the guardians. They've served their purpose. Their whole purpose was to bring us to Christ. And now that Christ is here, we don't go, well, that's nice, but I want to, I want training wheels again. You have the bike. You have the fullness of the thing. Don't go back. And so the Galatians needed to be reminded not to go back to those things. Don't give ear to the Judaizers who are trying to pull you back and put you under the guardians and all their restrictions and the condemnation that they bring. No, recognize that now is the fullness of time. But I think it's also, you all are not really in jeopardy of that. Uh, you all are not in jeopardy of going back and putting on the old Jewish regulations and thinking, okay, we guess we got to become Jews. So what is this, what, what's important for us to hear here? Well, one thing is important to hear is that Christmas brought about the fullness of time. That's why Paul, in the rest of his writings, calls the days in which we live these last days. These times in which we live are, in fact, the end times, and they've been the end times since Christ was born in the manger. Christ ushered in the end times. He ushered in the fullness of time. It is full. You and I are living in the reality of the end of the age. The end has come, if you will, in the birth of Christ. And the end will end at his second coming. But we are in the end. We are living in the fullness of time. It's something that uh, Paul and Peter say the prophets long to see what this would be like. And you and I are living here and we ought to rejoice in it. So the fullness of time, if you will, the entire Old Testament 
is pulled into that little phrase because the entire Old Testament was moving us toward this time of fullness and completion where they would give way. Like John the Baptist representing, if you will, all the Old Testament says as the final prophet, now I must decrease and he must increase. In so doing, John the Baptist is saying, I, let me represent the entire Old Covenant, the entire Old Testament. I must now give way. I must go away now. And he must increase. Because everything John the Baptist was about, just like every Old Testament prophet and every Old Testament law and regulation, it was pointing. It was pointing. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world comes on the scene, John the Baptist defers. I must decrease and he must increase. This is indeed the fullness of of time. Okay, so what happened in the fullness of time? The phrases continue. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God sent forth His Son. Now here we have a testimony to the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said it in our Christmas Eve Eve service. I said it uh, um, last Sunday. It is important for us to remember that in that manger, is not just a, a beautiful baby child who's going to become an amazing teacher and a, an amazingly sacrificial and loving man, though he is that. More importantly, lying in that manger is Yahweh himself. It is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. That's who's lying. In that manger, light of light, God of God, very God of very God, one substance with the Father. It's not that in the incarnation, God gained a son. It's in the incarnation, God sent his son. The already existing son of God was sent in the incarnation to become man. He doesn't become the Son. He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who even in the flesh remains truly and fully God, upholding the universe with His right hand, who takes the flesh. God sent forth His Son. And this is very important for us to remember. Again, that the one in the manger is the eternal second person of the Trinity, sent by the Father, the Son coming to do the will of His Father, that he might take on flesh on our behalf. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. Third phrase, born of a woman. And here, all each of these, each of these phrases requires a series of sermons, right? Each of these phrases requires a book because there's so much theology packed into them. But born of a woman. Here, of course, we have the true humanity of Jesus. Right? He doesn't just appear somewhere. He is born of Mary. He has Mary's DNA. He is truly human. He is, he is a man. It's Yahweh who is a man. It's in that manger is the humanity of Yahweh. Yahweh takes to himself a truly human nature so that at the same time, he is true God and true man, never mixing, but never separating. Remember our table talks, if you can, on how we hold together 
the humanity and divinity of Jesus, but you can never separate them and you can never mingle them so that they lose themselves in one another. No, his humanity is true humanity and his divinity is true divinity. But here, this phrase draws us to the humanity. He is born of a woman. He is truly our representative because he is truly man, just as you were born of a woman. So he was born as a woman. And in that phrase, then, all the aspects of his humanity, he shared our humanity. Think of Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch as his brothers were flesh and bone, so he too took on our humanity. Not ashamed to call us his brothers. So in this little phrase, all of our human reality is captured in Jesus Christ. He was born like we were born. He was raised like we were raised. He had to learn as we learn. He grew like we grow through troubles and afflictions, right? Uh, he, he, he gained wisdom through, uh, he learned obedience through what he suffered, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us. Jesus grew and matured. He ate when he was hungry, and he rested when he was tired, and he bled when he was caught, and when he was crucified, he died. That is, he entered into the very fullness and depths of our human experience. That's what, that's what is being said in the fact that he was born of a woman. But, of course, there's other layers to that phrase. Because he was born of a woman. Full stop. Right? He has no earthly father. He is the seed of the woman. And that phrase is a phrase which, if we know our Bibles, just opens up a whole nother treasure trove of thought and contemplation. Because in the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, in, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin and they're about to receive their curse and judgment, God first curses the serpent. And in cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He, that is, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, and you will crush, uh, you will bruise his heel. The seed of the woman. It's a very odd phrase, seed of the woman. What's that even mean? And really, we, we have a big fat question mark hanging over the entire Old Testament, wondering how is this going to be fulfilled, you know? Is it Cain? Cain's the first seed of the woman, it seems. No, it's not him. And all through the rest of the Old Testament, is it him? Is it him? Is it him? Is it him? No, Noah, no, Abraham, no, Moses, no. You know, no, no. Who, what is this seed of the woman? And then Paul takes it up and says, look, there he is. He is born of a woman. Right? This one, even Jesus Christ, is the fullness of, not only of time, but he's the fullness of every Old Testament prophecy, the fullness of every Old Testament promise. Here is this one, born of a woman. Yes, human. Yes, humility. But also the fulfillment of all our hopes and fears, as Mark prayed this morning. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here, the God of the law, for whom the law is just a mere reflection of his will and desire, now puts himself in the person of his son under the law. He's born of a woman under the law, meaning under the curse of the law, under the judgment of the law. The very thing that Paul is telling the Galatians, don't do, don't go back under the law. We are under grace, not under law. 
Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ freely took the form of a servant and became obedient, subjected himself beneath the law that damned us, the law that cursed us. Jesus came down under it. He is the God of the law, right? The law is the reflection of his will and of his beauty and of his righteousness. Yet he came in and subjected himself to the justice of the law, to the curses and judgments of the law. That's what it means that he was born under the law. Jesus came to obey every facet of the law for us. That if you will, by his obedience, he might weave together a robe of righteousness. That his act of obedience, acts of obedience, from the moment of his birth until his crucifixion, a life of obedience. In every stage here of life, Jesus is weaving by his obedience, threads of obedience that form a beautiful robe of righteousness that upon his death and resurrection, he takes off and gives to all who have faith and trust in him. That's what it means to come under the law. He obeys it all for you. And not does he obey it all for you, he suffers it all for you. Yes, he obeys every nook and cranny of the law. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in so doing, weaves a robe of righteousness for you. But he also takes your soiled robes, your disobedience, all the curse that you have stored up. While he gives you his robe, he takes your robe and hence goes to Golgotha. And what he's doing at Calvary, what he's doing on the cross is subjecting himself to the weight of the law on the world's behalf. He's, he's taking all of our soiled garments that deserve damnation and judgment and the wrath of God, and he wears them, having given you his righteousness, and he takes the judgment for these things. That's what it means to be brought under the law. And so in that little phrase, we can take up his whole work of, 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 uh, of substitution, standing in our place and taking the curses that were meant for us. Which brings us then to the final phrase, to redeem those. Now it takes us into verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law. That is, he did this missionally, right? He comes and he takes on the curse of the world in order to redeem, in order to, the word redeem means to buy back. And, and now we can hear the image of slavery, and we've just been hearing about slaves and heirs and sons, and he's gonna. This is gonna open a little window into a, a broader and very beautiful uh, point he makes here in the last couple of verses about slaves and heirs. You were slaves, and now click. Let us let us hear the words of Romans eight, but also of Romans six that we were once slaves to sin, just like Israel were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. We were slaves, but God bought us back. He purchased us out of slavery. How? By coming under the weight of the law. He bore the wrath that we deserved as slaves so that we could be liberated. And then just think about the Exodus and think about how they were liberated with the, the final plague and, and, and the fact that oh, the firstborn's going to die. And yet the Lord says, but if you'll kill this lamb and put the blood over the doorpost, then you know uh, you, your child will be free. But it was that... It was that last plague and that 
gracious act of deliverance that not only spared them from losing their firstborn, but was their liberation. It was that very deliverance that sent them out of Egypt as a whole. And Jesus, of course, is crucified at Passover. Jesus, it's not just, how can, what's a lamb got to do with liberating you from slavery? It's not until the fullness of time that the picture comes into focus and we see the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose blood truly does liberate us from our slavery so that we are free now to make our way to the promised land. You know, it's not until, it's not until Christ that we see it, but what he's doing in his ministry of coming under the weight of the law is redeeming us, buying us back with his blood. Just like this, just like the Passover lamb did in shadowy form, like training wheels on a bike, teaching you the lesson, but not actually getting it done. It's not until Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God, that His blood actually does redeem you from a greater Pharaoh. It redeems you from a greater slavery. And I can't end there because I just got to let, we got to walk through that portal into the last couple verses because it's so beautiful to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You were slaves. You were enemies. But he has redeemed you, not just so you can run free and find yourself in other slaveries. No, he redeemed you that you might no longer be slaves, but receive a gift, the greatest gift, adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And I reminded you, I forget whether it was last week or the week before, that to be a son, and even ladies, you are the sons of God. Because son here is not a male-female thing, it's a title. It's the title in the Bible of heir. Just like, again, guys, you are the bride of Christ. Not because it's a feminine thing. It's a title. And men, we are part of the bride of Christ. And ladies, you are the sons of God. Because it's not about male-female at this point. It's a title. And the title of son, to be the son of God, is to be the heir of God. And that's what he says. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, as Paul is saying, let me tell you what that means. If you're a son, you're an heir of God through Christ. Go back and read Romans 8, because there Paul talks about the same thing, about almost the same exact thing. No longer slaves, but heirs. And he says, not just heirs, but co-heirs with Christ, who is the Son of God. You were adopted into the family of God. You now become a son of God like Christ is the son of God. You're the adopted son of God. He's the only begotten son of God. But you are nonetheless a son of God. And if a son, then an heir, a co-heir with Christ. You just spend the rest of your day reflecting upon that phrase, that you are a co-heir. All that Christ inherits, you share with him. You are a co-heir with Christ because he has come under the weight and the burden of the law that he might redeem you, buy you back from the slavery that you once had so that you might not just be freed slaves, 
but even more that you might be adopted sons of God and as sons, heirs of all that is His. That is what Christmas means. That's what we celebrate in the Incarnation. And I encourage you to go back and just reflect upon those different phrases within there, because as I say, it's basically the entire Scripture, the entire Bible in one verse. May the Lord bless us in this Christmas season and remind us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might no longer be slaves, but be sons, co-heirs with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Incarnation, that you, O Lord God, humbled yourself to become man, to be born of a woman, to be born in a manger, to endure the scorn of your own creatures, to subject yourself underneath the weight and curses of your own law in order to redeem us, the guilty, in order to redeem us, the slave, in order to redeem us, the enemy, so that you might make us sons, heirs. Oh, Father, we pray that you would allow that truth to illuminate us, that you would allow that truth to be the lenses through which we interpret the realities of our lives, that you would use that truth to recalibrate our priorities in life, that you would give us true hope in the midst of the despair that the world around us provides. Encourage us, we pray. Fortify us. Make us courageous because we know that we are heirs with Christ. And if we are heirs with Him, then there is nothing we will lack. So, Father, in this Christmas season, we celebrate and we rejoice and we give you thanks. We ask this all and give praise in Jesus' name. Amen.